And uh, let's pray together this morning. Well, Father, we are thankful for joy and dancing and song and all the avenues we give us to praise you, that we get to come together as your people, Lord, to praise your name. God, that you are the sure God that our hope gets to be in. Lord, that you are a God who never fails us, who never lets us down, who never abandons us or forgets us, God. And because of who you are, because of all of the incredible things that you have done for us, we get to put our hope in you. We get to praise you, God, and know that you are sure and steady and true. And that as we look at our world and all the uncertainty that's in it, all the anxiety that it can bring, as we turn our eyes towards you, Lord, we know that you're with us, that you comfort us, that you offer us peace and hope and goodness and joy. God, let us remember that this morning as we sit here together as your body. Lord, we're thankful for this time. And God, as we are here, we want to to lift our world up to you, God. As our skies have been filled with smoke again the past few days, we continue to pray for the fires throughout our state, for the firemen and women who are fighting those fires and protecting communities um, and precious landlord that you created, I mean, people that you created. God, we pray that you'd be with them, that you would give them endurance and strength. God, we um, have so much in life that can cause fear, Um, fires being just one of those things, or pandemic being another one, Lord. Life continuing and trying to be normal can be that as well, God, and I just pray that you would continue to give us peace and strength, God, as we continue to walk our days, Lord, that you would just be with us here. Lord, we also want to remember that you are a God of justice, that you are one who pursues the lost and the broken and the downtrodden and the poor God, and that is your heart, Lord. And as we um, hear about Freedom Sunday and IJM this morning, God, I just pray that you would make us a people who are like-minded with you in your pursuit of justice. Um, and that's a, it's a justice that, that you proclaim and that comes from you, God, and that we as your people um, seek that too because you seek that, Lord, and, and we get to be with you in that. And I just pray that you would um, use this morning to open our eyes to the work you're doing in this world, God, and how we might be able to partner with you in it. So, Lord, we just pray that you would go before us this morning. We pray for Brian as he comes and shares with us later, God. Pray that you would open our hearts and our minds um, to hear from you, to remember who you are, God, to love you and know you more because of being here this morning. So we love you, Lord, in your name, amen. And as we prepare to hear from Brian this morning, um, he has selected a um, excerpt from Psalm 146 that he would like us to read together. So let's do so. We're gonna follow along the prompts on the screen as we read this together to prepare our hearts for his word. So blessed are those whose help is the God of Jacob, whose hope is in the Lord their God. He is the maker of heaven and earth, the seed of the dominion of faithful forever. He upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets prisoners free. The Lord 
The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord reigns forever. Your God, O Zion, for all generations. Praise the Lord. Amen. Brian, come up and continue to lead us in praise this morning. Well, good morning, everyone. Let's pray together as we come to the scriptures. Our Father, we thank you for the chance to sing your praises, to be in your presence, for you are seated on the praises of God's people. And now I pray for the meditations of our heart and the words of my mouth to be used by your spirit to bring life and holiness and freedom. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, during all my years of pastoring, I've had two encounters that have radically transformed my view of ministry. The first occurred on July 18th, 1988, when I met a Romania poet, Tron Dors, who'd been in prison for 17 years. And I discovered the power of poetry to unlock grief in a way that doesn't deny it or obliterate it, but rather transcends it by naming it and embracing it in the presence of God and his people. And coming home, I realized that I had a responsibility as a pastor, not only just to teach, but to give God's people a safe stage where they could have a voice to process their pain and testify to God's faithfulness in the presence of others. The second transformation occurred October 17th, 2013, when Grace Kwame invited Gary Haugen, the founder of International Justice Mission, to share his passion for justice to a small group of us in Fellowship Hall. I was stunned. To be honest, before Gary spoke, I never thought justice was possible. Uh, in 1994, he served as director of the United Nations investigation in the aftermath of the Rwanda genocide. And that violence that he witnessed against the poor spurred Gary and just a handful of others to do the absolute impossible, to create an organization that goes where evil is done with impunity and then work with the local churches to rescue the victims, bring criminals to justice, and repair justice systems. So today, we will examine a signature text on God's heart for justice and the strategy that he uses to get people involved in this holy work. And in this case, surprisingly, they have no interest in being part of it. In fact, God and his people are not even on speaking terms. God's people are disgruntled because during the painful years in exile, they have been zealous in their religious observances, but they find that God has been consistently absent and unresponsive. So they cry out, why do we fast and you do not see? Why have we been afflicting ourselves and you don't even notice? God is not present, nor does he answer his prayers. And so in, prom in response, God summons the prophet to engage the people in a dramatic dialogue to bring them home through three steps. First, exposing their sin and wrong thinking. He wants to lead them to repentance. 
Second, he then redefines true religion, like James does in the epistle. And then he resurrects their imagination and ignites their hope with the blessings of obedience and the work of justice. Let's begin in verse one. Cry aloud, do not hold back, lift up your voice like a trumpet or a shofar. Declare to the people their transgression and to the house of Jacob their sins. Well, the shofar was the ancient equivalent of an air raid siren. It's piercing blast as a signal to drop everything and pay attention because what the prophet was about to say was a life and death matter. So we had better get it right. There's a massive disconnect between the people's commitment to the rituals of religion and their total lack of transformation in relationships. Verse two, yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they were a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the justice of God. They ask of me righteous judgments, they delight to draw near to God. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Well, with tremendous sarcasm, God describes how they see themselves when they look in the mirror. Their lives are the ideal expression of what it means to love God and one's neighbor by their commitment to righteousness and justice, and that's how they see themselves. Well, righteousness is not about an abstract moral standard that we must adhere to. Righteousness refers to right relationships with God and to one another so that the community flourishes in every respect, including the environment. So a righteous person is one whose primary concern is for the welfare of the community and who serves the good of others at his own or her expense. A wicked person is concerned about themselves and serves him or herself at the expense of the community. And this explains why the Ten Commandments were written from the standpoint of my responsibilities, not my rights. It's very important to Americans. The Ten Commandments were written with respect to my responsibilities. Rights are implicit, but not the, not the focus. So the focus is not maintaining my rights, but protecting my neighbor's rights. So my neighbor has a right to his life, so I should not murder. My neighbor has a right to their home, therefore you shall not steal. He or she has a right uh, to their possessions and a right to their lives. So anytime I assert my rights at the expense of the community, that's wickedness. Now the Hebrew word for justice is mishpat, And in the Justice Calling, Bethany Hanke and Kristen Johnson explain, the word comes into play when things have gone wrong with God's original vision of shalom and restoration is needed so that equity and harmony are promoted in the community. Simply put, mishpat means setting things right. So doing righteousness and justice is the ultimate purpose for which we worship and it's the goal for which we pray May your kingdom come, your will be done on earth rather than is in heaven. Now like Paul, prior to his conversion, Isaiah's audience would boast that they were, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But God responds, you need to have your eyes examined. Verse three, 
Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble themselves? Is it to bow the head like a reed, to spread the sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? So God is sort of like a surgeon with a scalpel in his hand. He places the patient on the operating table, cuts him open, and exposes the malignant cancer that is spread throughout the whole body. And contrary to their accusation that God doesn't see or take notice of them, he thunders back with this double, behold, behold, this is what I see. You may think your rituals should bring special favor to me, but what I see are your workers who work long hours for meager wages and never a day off. When you're at church singing, I see them sweating in your warehouses in unsafe working conditions and inadequate protection from the virus. I also see how you respond to whistleblowers and to anyone who challenges you how you treat your employees. You unleash your attorneys to battle it out in court, and if that fails, you go on the attack with murderous slander campaigns. I see your worship as a cold and calculated public display of manipulation to increase your power, position, and possessions. This is why God is so furious and why Jesus had scathing words for the Pharisees. You know, Jesus was very tender with sinners, but when those in authority used religion to elevate their status and wealth by oppressing the poor, Jesus did not hold back. So as we wish to witness our patient now laid bare and exposed in all his sin, we wonder, is there any hope for recovery? Or is the condition terminal? And what happens next is not what we would expect. Instead of thundering down with condemnation and judgment, God gives them a vision of the road home and the manifold blessings that pour forth whenever his people repent and join him in doing the holy work of justice. And the poetic cadences are structured with an if-then, if-then format in three repetitive stanzas, making God's fatherly appeal ring in their ears. I kind of liken this, this is sort of God's I have a dream speech. And it begins with the definition of true religion. It's all about relationships, not ritual. Verse six, is this not the fast that I choose to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, and to break every yoke? So God redefines the concept of fasting from a disciplined ritual of not eating to acts of sacrificial love for one's neighbor that liberates them from oppression whenever they're denied the resources necessary for life. Walter Brueggemann writes, the action commanded here is a true fast. It requires doing without, denying oneself, giving things up in obedience, a decision against self-indulgence. The double term yoke refers to the disproportionate indebtedness that placed some members of the community in hawk to others. To undo and let go free means to cancel paralyzed debts. 
thus anticipating allusion to the practice of jubilee. So relevant to our days during COVID, isn't it? And the needs of the poor. But there's a problem. You can't liberate the poor from oppression if you can't see them. Now, Jesus tells the story of a rich man in Luke 16 who built a massive wall around his home to protect and insulate himself from all the unpleasantness of the world outside. When a man called Lazarus, who was starving and sick, came to his home seeking a scrap to eat from whatever fell from the rich man's table, he couldn't get past the gate. Even the dogs demonstrated more mercy than the rich man and licked Lazarus' wounds, while the rich man feasted sumptuously every day, oblivious that there was a stranger starving and who eventually died outside his gate. Well, to protect ourselves from the coronavirus, we've been living in isolation. But the metaphor is equally apt when our lives were normal. We live isolated and insulated lives in formidable walls built into the economic fabric of our valley, not to mention the ones we personally erect to insulate ourselves from anything that makes us uncomfortable. Bottom line, we don't see the oppressed. So to break down the walls, the poet's vivid imagery pulls us into the scene so that we encounter the oppressed with all five senses. This is something IJM does in all their rescues. They uh, take you to the brothels and then down the stairs and you see these victims and the children coming out and you're just deeply moved because now you see them. And so in verse seven he says, is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not to hide yourself from your own flesh? So setting the oppressed free is the first step to doing justice. The second step is to heal their wounds and restore their dignity by bringing them into a safe and nurturing community. So you'll notice in verse six, the poet invites us into the world of the oppressed, but now in verse seven, the oppressed is invited into our homes to share all that we have. So notice the progression in this intimacy. First you tear off the bread sharing your meals. Then you bring them into your home, giving them a place of rest. Then you cover them with your own clothing. And then finally it says, you don't hide your face from your own flesh. Your own flesh. That says that the hungry and the homeless and naked have now been transformed into your family. I think I'm excited to announce this Friday, I think it's October 1st, and our dear friend Leon Tan has got us involved in the homeless ministry. And coming onto our parking lot will be uh, the homeless to spend the night to be cared for. And what so impressed me is how um, generous you all are. Over 50 volunteers have volunteered. to meet the homeless, to care for them, to make meals for them, which makes me proud. Now, if the prophet's words seem overwhelming to you, I'd like to suggest two easy on-wraps to help us further with the task of justice. The first is, <clears throat> just listen to someone's story. And by someone, I mean a person you know whose background is different than yours, 
Suspend your presuppositions and fixed categories and just listen. Listen. Spend a day in their shoes and walk the road they walk to see life from their perspective. Stories are the bridges that take us safely across the divide of prejudice and hate. And giving someone a voice with no agenda is a gift that lights up the soul, feeds intimacy, and awakens love. Secondly, I'll get on my soapbox, pray the Psalms. Why? We have 150 Psalms, 53 are lament. And out of those, many of those situations you won't recognize. But those Psalms are the divine voice of the Messiah and the cries of the poor. And by hearing those voices, you become compassionate, even though it's not your situation. So pray the Psalms. So the prophet has exposed our sin to repent. He's redefined true religion. And now comes step number three, resurrecting hope. You know, the benefits that God promises to those who engage in the work of justice are absolutely overwhelming. To stir their imagination, ignite their hope, God evokes the imagery of the exodus and the wilderness wanderings and then expands them. You know, so often we want to go back to normal. <clears throat> I don't want to go back to normal. And God never goes back to normal. So he takes an event that was glorious, like the Exodus, and then he puts it in poetry and expands it to make it better. So God's salvation history is always getting better, more greater, and more glorious. And so just allow these images to sit with you a while and see what it does for your soul. Verse 8. Then your light shall break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you, and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Then you shall call, the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, Hineni, here am I. So the then of verse 8 anticipates immense well-being that breaks forth like the dawn with light and healing and protection and safety. You know, the worshipers wanted to be seen by God and now they'll be noticed and cared for by him. God will be their protector and the one who guarantees their well-being and safety. The second consequence is that God will be fully present among them and will be readily available to answer their prayers. And I think this is the deepest spiritual need we have to enjoy full communion with God that eliminates the feeling of being alone. I was in Hawaii this uh, <clears throat> early July and with a friend out in the water and he had just shared some news with me and I was so happy, but we had drifted and I hadn't realized that we had drifted over the rocks, over the coral. And the waves were bigger than normal and as I looked down, I screamed, rocks! And at that moment, you haven't got time to say much, but at that moment, he was in front of me and a huge wave crashed over him and he didn't come up. And I thought he was dead. And on the shore was a uh, gentleman with his little girl and the little girl said to him, Daddy, are they gonna die? That man walked out 100 yards over the hard coral but he had shoes on and my friend was holding himself against the rock because he knew he couldn't get back out and he gently lifted him up and carried him to safety. And I thought, my gosh, God, you are so responsive. 
Well, God repeats the conditions of the consequences two more times, and as we listen, the requirements remain the same, but the benefits become more expansive and rewarding and therefore enticing. This is the voice of a father begging his children to come home. Verse nine. If you take away the yoke from their midst, the pointing of the finger, the speaking of wickedness, if you pour out yourself for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted. So the command to remove the yoke of oppression is restated along with the one thing preventing their healing. See what it is? It's their persistent denial and defensiveness. This is the pride of the narcissist who can never admit their guilt but God won't have it. The righteous person welcomes correction and rebuke. As the sages wrote, let the righteous man strike me, it is kindness. Let him rebuke me, it is oil for my head. Let not my head refuse it. Well, after we remove the yoke of oppression, the real work of restoration has just begun. And to be effective, it takes extraordinary commitment. So rather than afflicting yourself by making yourself hungry, the prophet says, show your devotion to God by pouring out your soul for those who are truly afflicted by the crushing forces of life. Now such a demand seems daunting, but it's not as difficult as you might think. Verse 10. Then shall your light rise in the darkness, your gloom be as noonday, and the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places. Make your bones strong and you shall be like a, a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Just live in those images a minute. When you break down the walls and enter into the world of the oppressed, God opens the floodgates of heaven pours out the light of his presence that gives us faith and hope and self-giving love with no darkness can put it out. What's interesting to me, almost every staff member I've met at IJM, I want to be my friend. They are so attractive. And what struck me, what is it about people who do justice? It's like that work makes you so other-centered. You've just become a healthy person and people want to be around you. Now this imagery of darkness and gloom takes us back to the familiar cadences of Isaiah 9. Remember, no more darkness and gloom. Referring to the Assyrian oppression and the great light that would signal the birth of a son whose reign would be wonderful with everlasting peace. Of course, that peace will not be complete until Jesus returns and and evil is done with permanently. But as servants of Christ's kingdom on earth, we have a key role to play in the mission of peace and justice here and now. We're the salt and light of the earth. And we are that light to those who are hidden in darkness. And the imagery of verse 11 with its threefold mention of water evokes the memory of the Lord's supernatural care, satisfying all Israel's needs that when he led them to the wilderness. And the striking feature is for those who pour out their souls to satisfy the soul of the afflicted, God will satisfy our souls in scorched places. This is my favorite verse. Now Jesus' disciples experienced this uh, in Mark. Remember, after a long day teaching in a desolate place, they asked Jesus to send the people away so they could buy 
for themselves something to eat. But Jesus responded, you feed them. And in reluctance, they obeyed and they experienced what? A miraculous supply. And what happens at the end? All ate and were satisfied. Not to mention there were 12 baskets left over, one for each apostle. When we pour out our souls to satisfy the hunger of others, God feeds us, and it is a meal where every bite is savored in communal love. Then in verse 12, God promises that despite the sin of mankind, ruin and destruction is not the last word. Verse 12, and your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt, and you shall raise up the foundations of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. Jerusalem will be built again. As John Oswald observes, it was their sin that destroyed the city. It'll be their righteousness through the grace of God that will rebuild it. God always gives us the dignity of being involved in putting back together what we have broken. We cannot do it apart from him, but he will not do it apart from us. So as a result, this, this community gets a new name, the repairer of the breach and the restorer of the streets. Those are two necessities needed to keep a community protected and commerce flourishing. But in the heavenly city, which is the reality, it speaks of healing broken lives and reconnecting them in community. Do you notice Jesus never healed anybody in isolation? He always puts them back in community as full members. So the vision of a restored community with its citizens rooted and flourishing like a new Garden of Eden would seem to be as good as it gets, but there is still more. Verse 13. If you, turn your back from, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath and doing your pleasure on my holy day and call the Sabbath a delight and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it not going your own ways or seeking your own pleasure or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Well, Sabbath is the day we stop work and take time to adore God who generously supplies all our needs. Sabbath is the antidote to greed and the exploitation of others. It's the time we reorient our spiritual compass to the true north of God's gracious character that all of life is a gift. I'm always surprised when we get these fringe Christians who get so scared they want us to hoard everything or just buy gold. And the creation is rich. There's plenty to go over. That's why we can just give it away. You can't outgive God. And that's what Sabbath teaches. We rest, we enjoy the abundance of creation, and we meditate on his complete redemptive work that is pure gift. Now the real benefit of Sabbath is found in the transformation of our affections from vain pleasures which don't satisfy to eternal delight which transcends anything the world can offer. 
As our affections are transformed, we will experience the breathless exaltation of being partners with God as he makes the clouds his chariot and he rides on the wings of the wind. You know, the next slide. There you go. There you go. Now, let's look at that for a minute. Why would you satisfy your soul with video games when you can go skydiving with God? I'm just saying. Why would you rather do that than go skydiving with God and be part of his redemption? <laughs> it is such a privilege to serve where he's serving and be part of his work. Well, the text leads us to the repetitive cadences of stirring pleas, resounding in our hearts, sealed with a solemn assurance of the sure word of God out of the mouth of God. Well, I called my friend Sanjay McWan, who is the field off director of the office of Mumbai, and I said, do you have a word for our congregation? And he wrote and he said, a few years ago when I was at PBCC, I promised the church that the next time when I come, I will bring the good news that the trafficking of minor girls in public brothels is ended. I'm not able to come and share the good news, but I've asked Brian to share with the congregation that today, no minor girls are found in once was the largest brothel area in South Asia. <laughs> God has used his church to end violence against young girls in Mumbai's public establishments. PBCC was and still is my first formal supporter in the fight against sex trafficking. You prayed with us, for us, <clears throat> you cried on behalf of those suffering. You sent encouragement to us who are on the front lines. You've loved us as your brothers and sisters and friends. The journey of justice in Mumbai is with PBC for the glory of God. Well, before we come to the table now, Michelle Burke has written a poetic response that we will use for confession of this text. The Lord looks and sees the enslaved masses groaning, the unseen child in a brothel calling out for justice, and he is appalled to see that there is no justice. For there are two parallel worlds living side by side where one person safely consumes while another's life is consumed, where the pursuit of profit and entertainment can lead to the loss of freedom for another. Our hearts betray our indifference, our love of comfort, our silence and complicity, where financial loss or downturn makes us more angry than oppression or despair. May we be warned, God is not mocked, and his wrath is kindled by injustice. He wraps himself in a cloak of zeal with his mighty arm bared. He will unleash the rushing river of justice driven by his powerful breath. Let us rouse ourselves and open our eyes and open our ears to the painful story of the exploited men, women, and children too, fired to fight, too tired to fight anymore. Let us walk in their shoes and take up their yokes on our back so we may know just how heavy it has been 
and how long it has been carried so that our hearts can break. Let us extricate ourselves from the sticky web of finger pointing and look within for evidence of apathy and greed conceived in our hearts that we may crush it before it breeds indifference. Spirit, breathe on us. We need your covenant of peace and the water of life to refresh us. Awaken your church, your bride, to see the oppressed are waiting for us to hear their cries and act. Lord, may your kingdom come. And the congregation said, amen. Let's receive now the word of the Lord. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Take delight in the Lord, and he'll give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to him. Trust in him, and he will do this. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Amen.